we come to read from God's Word. Um, it's so nice to see some new faces. My name's Duncan, and I'm looking forward to preach to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We love your Word. Thank you for the Bible. Thank you for that which you've spoken to us. And Lord, I pray you would speak to us again through Matthew 22 now. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Bring encouragement where we need encouragement. Bring challenge where we need to be challenged. Lord, we meet here for your glory. And we ask you to have your way in our lives during this period now. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the relationship between obeying earthly government and obeying God? How will life after the resurrection from the dead be different to life now? And why is Jesus the right person to answer these questions? You might think those three questions have nothing to do with each other at all, but in the passage we're about to read, Jesus begins to answer those questions and reveal something about who he is and his authority to answer our most difficult of questions. You, remember, you may remember last week, I preached on the parable of the wedding feast. And Jesus, at the beginning of Matthew 22, tells a story to remind us that we as Christians are invited to an eternal celebration. All Christians will gather and have a banquet in the presence of God at the end of time. But he also tells that story to criticise the Jewish rulers who were present at the time. And he says, you guys have rejected me and rejected this invitation. Well now, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jewish rulers will respond and seek to trap Jesus and undermine his popularity with some very tricky questions. Let's see what they come up with. I'm going to read Matthew 22, verses 15 to 33. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why do you put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marvelled and left him and went away. The same day, the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? 
I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. So the first tricky question that the Pharisees bring to Jesus to trap him is about paying taxes to Caesar. If Jesus answers the question by saying, yes, we ought to pay taxes to Caesar, then the Jewish people who have been conquered and controlled by Rome will turn away from Jesus. Jesus is gathering crowds, they're they're following him and listening to him. So if Jesus says, yeah, let's pay taxes to Caesar, the Jews will go, no, we we hate the Romans. How dare you say that? And so Jesus' popularity will be undermined. And so suddenly he'll be easier to take out if you're a Pharisee. But if Jesus answers the question, no, then the Pharisees can run to the Romans and say, there's this Galilean guy who's going around saying, we ought not to pay any taxes to you. He's starting a rebellion. And then the Romans will sweep in and take Jesus out. So do you see, it's a very clever question that the Pharisees have come up with to trap Jesus. Notice that the disciples of Pharisees and the Herodians begin with flattery. Now, we're unsure precisely why the Herodians are here in this moment in the story, by the way. These are supporters of King Herod's dynasty. You know, the King Herod who in the Christmas story kills all the infants in Bethlehem. These are people who supported him and support his dynasty. Now, that dynasty was deposed in 6 AD. So it's possible that the Herodians are there because they really hate the, they really hate the Romans. And so whatever Jesus says, they're going to rise up. Or it's possible that King Herod only had power because the Romans gave it to him. So it's possible that they're really pro the Romans. So whatever way Jesus answers, there's a problem here. We're not quite sure precisely why the Herodians are here. But the Pharisees and the Herodians begin with flattery. We know, Jesus, you are true and teach God's way truthfully. We know, Jesus, that you are not swayed by appearances. Now, we know that's not really what they think. They're trying to trap him. They want to kill him. They they have no high thought of Jesus. So they're trying to flatter him into giving a silly answer and trap him. But it's interesting that what they say about Jesus is completely and utterly true. Jesus is the true teacher of God. He is the one who teaches God the Father's ways. He never lies. He's not swayed by appearances. He's not trying to please people. That's not who Jesus was. He is the one sent from God, the one who lived lived alongside the Father in heaven. He's come to earth and he teaches what is true. His teaching does not have a human origin. It's not invented by a particularly clever human who's thought really deeply about these things. No, the words of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus is given given to us by a God who wants to be known. That's why one of the reasons Jesus came to earth is to reveal God the Father to us and to teach us what is true and to do so in a way that we know has authority because of who he is. He's the eternal son of God, the one who's not swayed by appearances and always teaches what is true. Even in this moment, when these people come with flattery and they want to kill him, he's not swayed by appearances. And he speaks what is true. Just before I get into the detail of this passage, just take a moment and say in your heart, Lord Jesus Christ, you are my teacher. 
Duncan is not my teacher. The elders of Christchurch Fairham are not my primary teacher. The, peop- the person who is my teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ because his words are always true. And as far as possible in this church, we're going to try and teach you the things that he said. This isn't hear what Duncan has to say. This is hear what the word of God says because Jesus is the true teacher. So they flatter Jesus and then they ask the question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Now, of course, in Roman law, it's very lawful to pay taxes to Caesar. The law demands it. So he's not asking about Roman law. They're asking about Jewish law. According to the Old Testament, according to Jewish law, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus responds by immediately calling them out. You hypocrites, you're testing me. I know that you're testing me. And yet he still answers the question. And he answers the question by saying, someone give me a coin. Someone give me a coin. There's a good reason that Jesus doesn't have a coin in that moment, by the way. On the denarius was a picture of a man called Tiberius Caesar. And an inscription on the coin described him as Divi Filius, which means son of God. So on this coin, there's a picture of a Caesar claiming to be divine, claiming to be the son of God. It's an idolatrous coin. It's a coin of idolatry. Now, because of this inscription, which was idolatrous in the eyes of the Jews, the Romans allowed the Jews to do everyday business with their own copper money, which didn't have the same print on it. So everyday Jews walking around doing life would not have carried a denarius with this idolatrous inscription. And yet someone among the Pharisees is carrying one. Someone's got one. There's a reason Jesus isn't carrying this coin. The only reason for using this coin as denarius was to pay tax directly to the Romans. So if you're a Jewish tax collector, you might have a denarius because you would use that to pay the tax to Caesar. But your everyday Jew, Jesus Christ, would not carry one. That makes it an even cleverer question, doesn't it? Should we use this coin of idolatry to pay to a foreign invader and aggressor? It's a genius question, and yet Jesus' genius is phenomenal. He answers this way. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Give to God the things that are God's. And that answer does two things spectacularly well. The first thing that that answer does is, actually, yeah, pay tax to the governing authority. Or more broadly, what Jesus is saying is, obey and honour earthly government. Insofar as earthly government does not force us to disobey God, we should obey. This is what Jesus' answers teaches us. We should obey the earthly government as as long as it doesn't force us to disobey God. That means as Christians, we should pay taxes. We should obey speed limits. We should not steal sport, music or movies online. We shouldn't litter. We should obey the laws of the land. We should obey earthly government insofar as their commands, their rules do not force us to disobey God. We're Christians, so we obey the law in every way. Of course, in Acts, there's a new question that arises. 
The disciples are told that they must stop teaching in Jesus' name. They're going around preaching the gospel and people are converting and becoming Christians and, and they're told, you must stop. This is the law speaking. You must stop preaching in the name of Jesus. And in that instance, how do the disciples respond in Acts chapter 5? We must obey God rather than man. You see, in that instance, they're being told they, to disobey God. They're being given instruction to disobey God. So in that moment, it's right to say, no, we do not submit to human government, but we submit to God's commands. But whenever there's not that conflict, Christians are called to honour and obey earthly government. So that's the first thing that Jesus' answers does. It says, actually, yeah, respect the Roman authorities. But the second thing that Jesus does in that answer is show very, very clearly that Caesar isn't God. Obey the earthly authorities, pay the taxes to Caesar, but I'm going to show you that what's written on that coin is absolute nonsense because you give to Caesar what is Caesar's, you give to God what is God's. Caesar is not God. Caesar is not the son of God. That inscription on that coin is not correct, says Jesus, in this very simple but brilliant answer. And so what Jesus is saying is give this silver coin to Caesar. It's got his picture on it. Give it back to him. Give the tax to Caesar. But give to God what belongs to God because Caesar isn't God. Now that raises a question, doesn't it? What is it that we are to give to God? What is Jesus talking about? What, what belongs to God such that we give it to him? And maybe Jesus is talking about money here. Maybe he's saying, give the, the tax to the Romans, give that to Caesar, but actually you ought to be giving money to the temple and to the worship of God as well. And as Christians, we pay our tax but we also give to the church because we want to give our money to see the gospel be proclaimed. We want to give our money to love and care for the poor. So maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. But I think he's saying something much, much deeper than that as well. Let me ask you a really, really important question. Whose image or likeness do you bear? Whose image or likeness do you bear? You see, there's a coin and it's got an image of Caesar. And because it's got an image of Caesar, God goes... Give that to Caesar. But there are billions of human beings on this planet created after the likeness of God, created in God's image. Give to Caesar this little tiny silver coin, but give yourself to God, for you bear his likeness and his image. That's what it says in Genesis 1. God created man and woman in his image. And that's how I think we ought to understand this command of Christ. We give to Caesar a small coin. We give God everything that we are. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Render to God what is God's. We believe as Christians that Christ gave his life for us upon the cross. He gave his very life for us, that he shed his blood, that we might be forgiven, that we might receive grace, that we might receive everlasting life. Christ gave his life. He gave everything for us upon the cross. What is an appropriate response to that act of sacrifice that Christ has given for us? Well, I believe it's to say this. Here I am, Lord. 
Body, mind, soul, spirit, strength, dreams, goals, priorities and hopes. I bear your image, therefore I give you all that I am. It's all yours. I wonder whether you've ever prayed that prayer. Here I am, God, I'm yours. Here I am, God, I'm yours. That's a glorious thing to say because he's the God of the universe. He created all things. All power belongs to him and he's the God of compassion and he loves you and he cares for you. So it's an amazing thing to say, God, I'm all yours. It's a glorious thing. He will show you such goodness in the way that he will direct you. And I think that's the heart that every Christian ought to have. I bear your image, God. I am all yours. I'm giving you all. Maybe there needs to be a moment of repentance in the room this morning. Maybe you've been giving God a a tenth of your life. Or maybe just Sundays. Or a quarter or a half. And actually today is the moment to say, Lord, thank you for the forgiveness that Christ won for me on the cross. I want to go all in now. I want to go 100%. I'm rendering to God what is God's. And I belong to the Lord. Or maybe it's not a moment of repentance, but a moment of recommitment. A moment of saying, yes, I've said this before, I'm saying it again, Lord, I'm giving you everything that I am. You will not regret that decision. He is a good Lord and a mighty God. So render to Caesar, obey earthly government, but give to God everything that you are. Oh, Jesus is such a genius teacher, isn't he? A second question comes from the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They believe that all there is in the, is this life and then you're gone. And so you can build a kind of legacy remaining on the earth, but you will not rise to new life. That's what the Sadducees believed. And so they go, oh, we've got a really smart question. This is going to trick Jesus. He's going to have no chance with this one. Here's a woman. She's had seven husbands on the earth. In the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? This is going to prove that the resurrection will not happen. This woman, who's had seven wives, it's just going to be complete confusion in the resurrection. Therefore, we will, Jesus will deny the resurrection and he'll agree with us. But Jesus answers very robustly in verse 29 to these Sadducees. He says, you are wrong. You don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. That just makes complete sense to me, by the way. In a moment, I'm going to show, Jesus shows us that the scriptures teach about the resurrection. But also, these Sadducees had no idea about the power of God. The Sadducees' God was a God who, who kind of walked with us for 70, 80 years or whatever. And then we die and God just goes, oh, well, that person's gone. Let's move on to the next person. Like, that's the God of the Sadducees. It doesn't believe in resurrection. That's, it, it's, just a, it's just a powerless image of God. That's who the Sadducees worship. That's not who we worship. We worship the God of life, the God of resurrection, the God who takes his followers and raises them to new life into eternity. We believe in the eternal God who has always existed, always will exist into the future and we will be raised to be with him forever and ever. We worship a way more powerful God than the Sadducees were worshipping in this story. This is where our confidence comes from, Christchurch Fairham. This is where our boldness comes from. It comes from the scriptures and the power of God. We love the word. We stand on the word. I loved what Andy prayed. We're 100% confident in the word of God. That gives us boldness. And not only the words of this book, but the power of God demonstrated throughout history gives us a boldness as Christians. We can do nothing except by God's power. I wonder if you're going through this recommitment process this morning with me. 
you're saying Jesus is the true teacher. I want to learn from him. You're saying, I'm giving God everything, all that I am. Would you add to that? I need to know the scriptures. I need to live my life on the Bible, on God's word. And would you also add, I'm fully reliant on God's power. I can do nothing in my own strength, but I can be bold because of the power of God, because this is what Jesus is talking about. You know nothing. You don't know. The, you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now, Jesus then answers the question and teaches us about ma- marriage in the resurrection. At the end of time, we are judged by God and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth with God if we are believers in Christ or we are thrown into the fires of hell and separated from God forever. Now, assuming we're in heaven, will I still be married to Rachel in the new heavens and the new earth? Well, the answer that Jesus gives here is no. Marriage is an earthly institution given by God for this life. It's a wonderful gift, but it's an earthly institution given for this life. Within marriage, sex is to be enjoyed and to be used for procreation. And there is an exclusive love in marriage. You know, I love Rachel with a love that I do not love the rest of you with. I love you guys in the church. But Chris is looking upset about that. Sorry, Chris. (laughs) I love Rachel with an exclusive love that's different to the way I love the rest of you. But in the resurrection, life will be different again. There'll be no need for procreation in the new heavens and the new earth because we'll all live eternally. I suggest to you that the enjoyment of heavenly activities will far surpass enjoyment of sex on earth. And finally, I think that love and the togetherness of heaven will no longer be exclusive, but will be broad and wonderful, better and broader in the resurrection. In other words, we'll love one another with such a deep and perfect love that it would not make sense to talk about an exclusive love between a man and a woman exclusively, because we'll all just care for one another. We'll just love each other so deeply and wonderfully. We'll be made in the image of Christ perfectly. We'll see him as he is, and we'll be like him forever, and therefore we'll love others with the love of Christ. And think for a moment just how much Christ loved you. He died on the cross for you. So with that kind of love, that's the kind of love that you're going to have for everyone else in the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, the resurrection will be different. There'll be no need for the earthly institution of marriage. And Jesus says this, you don't know the, you don't know the scriptures. There isn't marriage in heaven. But that's not really the main issue behind the question, is it? The Sadducees aren't saying, Jesus, just teach us about what marriage will be like in heaven. What they're really saying is, we don't believe in the resurrection and we're trying to fool you into thinking that there's no resurrection. And so the teaching that Jesus brings in verses 31 to 32 is staggeringly brilliant. I wonder whether you've ever asked the question, does the Old Testament teach resurrection? Have you ever thought about that question? Does the Old Testament teach resurrection? Well, there is a verse in Daniel that teaches explicitly about resurrection. But Jesus' teaching is, is just superb. Jesus basically says, isn't it completely obvious there's a resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament? It's just so obvious to me that there's a resurrection. Because in Exodus 3, verse 6, long after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob have died on the earth, God speaks to Moses and says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
Now, what is God saying when he speaks to Moses? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Is God standing there with three dead bodies behind him in that moment? And Moses goes, oh, man, I'm not very excited that you're the God of Abraham because there's Abraham's body. And I'm not very excited that you're the God of Isaac because there's Isaac's body. I'm not very excited that you're the God of Jacob because there's Jacob's body. That's not what's happening at all. That's crazy, isn't it? That's, that's a rubbish God, not worthy of our worship. But when God says, I'm the God of Abraham, he's saying, Abraham died on the earth, but he's alive with me. Well, I'm the God of Isaac. He died on the earth, but he is alive with me. I am the God of Jacob. He died on the earth, but he's alive with me. I am the God of Lindsay, and she died on the earth, but she is alive with me. Isn't that gloriously good news? He's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And so when he says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's saying there is a resurrection of the dead. And the Sadducees have missed it for countless generations. The stupid Sadducees. They, their legacy is this story. The Sadducees, if, all the, if there's no resurrection, their legacy on the earth is this story where their names aren't written down and we, we see them and we go, man, the Sadducees are idiots. They're so stupid. That's their legacy. But if there's a resurrection and if these Sadducees turn and believe in Christ, then they are raised to new life and will live forever with Christ. Our God is so worthy of worship. These were great men on the earth. But their days in heaven are greater and more glorious. He is the God of the living, not of the dead. Jesus is the most brilliant teacher in history. He's that, you know, I've, I've read the Old Testament over and over. But it's Jesus who taught me how clear the resurrection is in the Old Testament through just those simple words. He's such a brilliant teacher. No wonder in verse 33, it says they were astonished. They were astonished at Jesus' teaching. He is able to speak with authority because he is the son of God come down from heaven. He can say, yeah, I've seen Abraham. (laughs) He's alive and well. I've seen Isaac. I've seen Jacob. They're in heaven. He can say that because that's where he's come from. And in case the Sadducees didn't believe him then, in case the Pharisees didn't believe him then, after his crucifixion on Easter Sunday, after he has died, he will rise from the grave. He will conquer death. He is the God of the living. And all who believe in him will rise to new life with him. Let us praise our wonderful God. Let us praise Jesus, our glorious teacher, and let us rejoice that we have life. If you know Jesus, you have eternal life, because to know Christ is to have eternal life. And therefore, you are the one of the living that he is God of, and you will eternally be one of the living that he is God of. Can we stand, and can I invite the band back up to the front, please? I think there's two ways we have to respond to this passage of scripture. Two ways we need to respond to Jesus. The first is to worship him, to praise him, to sing his praises. He's the astonishing teacher. He's the son of God come from heaven. He is the king of kings from whom earthly government receive their authority. He's the resurrection and the life. He's the crucified lamb 
but also the death-defying, grave-conquering, eternal hero. We read this story and we've got to go, praise you, Jesus, you are phenomenal. I am astonished at who you are. That's the first response. And so in a moment we're going to sing. I think the second response is a commitment or a recommitment response to say, actually, I'm giving everything that I am to God. I'm rendering to God what is God's. I'm giving him everything that I am. All my strength, all my mind, all my hopes, all my dreams, all of my life, I'm giving to God. And so what I'm going to ask us to do is two things. The guys are going to lead us in a song and we're going to sing praise. And if you want to respond with worship, then why don't you stay where you are and sing with gusto about our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. But if you want to make a a move this morning, if if you want to say to God in a physical way, Jesus, have everything that I am. I'm going to invite you to come to the front. There'll be people who can pray for you at the front, but maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to make a physical movement and say, I'm all in God. It's not 50% anymore. It's 100% of me that I'm giving to you. I'm rendering all that I am to you because I bear your image. So let me pray and then we'll sing. And then if you want to respond, come forward. We'd love to pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. He is magnificent. He he gets some tricky questions and he turns them into the glorious lessons that we need to learn. He teaches us about the resurrection. He teaches us about earthly government. He teaches us about the Old Testament and how to read the Old Testament. He is spectacular. He is the Son of God come from heaven and we want to worship him for he is the Son of God. Not Augustus, not not Caesar on that coin, but Jesus is the Son of God worthy of our worship. He is the resurrection of the life and you, Lord God, are the God of the living, not the dead. So receive our worship this morning. Also receive our very lives. We want to give everything that we are to you in worship. We want to live every second for you, every minute, every hour for you. We just give you all that we are. We render to you what is yours because we bear your image. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.